Welcome to Governance House. This is Backgammon, our in-house podcast touching on the latest updates from the Middle East. This is Radi Sari in Washington, D.C., and I'm joined by my colleague Wilson Fash, who is currently in Kabul, Afghanistan. It has been a year since Afghani President Ashraf Ghani fled the country in the aftermath of the U.S. forces evacuation in what has been one of the most dramatic shifts in U.S. global positioning since 9-11. Today, Kabul remains as disconnected from the global economy as it was a year ago. But a lot has changed during this past year as the Taliban reaffirmed its grip over the country. Wilson, you've been traveling all over Afghanistan for the last weeks. How has the country changed? What can you, what have you observed? Well, you know, I, I came here back in September, right after the, the US pullout and the Taliban coming back to power. Then I came again in December and then again uh, uh, three weeks ago now. And, you know, the first time I came in September, it was still chaos and, and panic and everyone was so disoriented. Um, then I came in the winter and there you then you could really feel the crisis both the economic crisis and the humanitarian crisis and you will see hospitals filled with uh, malnourished uh, children and even adults um, you had an explosions of uh, people begging in the streets all over the country uh, so that was really new then um, and now the situation is not better but you, you get a sense that somehow the people are getting used to this new reality, um, which is a new government and also a new e- economic state of affairs, which is on the basically uh, the economy on the brisk- brink of collapse. But yes, yeah, somehow it feels like people are getting used to this new reality. Yeah, I mean, this is something we also saw in Iraq, you know, when, when ISIS took over. I think one of the main differences here is that in Iraq, the presidents did not flee. You know, the president, the prime minister remained in Baghdad, whereas in Afghanistan, the whole government evacuated. And I think this is where, with having Taliban, which is not recognized by the U.S., not recognized by many countries, in power, must have caused a new challenge for people there, don't you think? Like, how can people uh, uh, travel? Which passports did they use? Like, how does, how does the communication with the international world happen? Well, I would say it's very limited. Um, first of all, people couldn't get a passport for months. The, those offices were closed. Now it's open again, but it cost closed. I was told close to a thousand dollar to get a new passport. So obviously, the vast majority of the population doesn't have that kind of money. And even if they did, they wouldn't have the money to travel by plane because the tickets, the international tickets with the local companies, are extremely expensive. So it is a country and a people that are completely disconnected from the outside world um, when it comes to traveling and when it comes to diplomatic relations and also when it comes to the economy because now the well for a year now the central afghan bank has been disconnected from the um, international uh, economic system financial banking system Um, that means that well that basically provoked a complete collapse of the private sector um, because companies are unable to import and export. They are unable to make international payments and to be paid internationally. I, uh, a couple of days ago, I visited a 
clothing factory, which uh, used to employ 700 employees, including 500 women. And they had to close down in August 2021 um, because there was no liquidity anymore. They just couldn't function without a functioning banking system. So that's just on the private sector. But then you also, you have to remember that uh, before August 21, before the Taliban came back to power, close to 75% of the Afghan economy was relying on on uh, outside funding. It was the international community and Western powers and the US and the EU that were bankrolling the Afghan Republic, basically. And those uh, fundings were stopped from one day to the other when the Taliban came back to power. So in addition to the healthcare system collapsing, which you described, in addition to all of the, the hardship on people, there's also potential for a return to old habits like the drug business you know the agriculture was was booming in afghanistan during and after the uh, and before the taliban uh, uh took uh, control so what would you say uh, uh the the real risks are in the next year especially as we're not seeing any development on the front of releasing those funds the taliban has not fulfilled the promises it it said it would do Uh, also, what happened with, you know, Zawahiri, that was a violation of the Doha agreement, which says the U.S. is to seize operation in the country. Clearly, it didn't. But by that same token, uh, the, the Taliban themselves uh, uh, broke the, the agreement by harboring uh, Zawahiri. So how, how is it looking? What can you tell us about that uh, uh, assassination as well? Uh, well, so I was already in Kabul, right, when uh, Zawari was uh, assassinated in a U.S. drone strike. <clears throat> um, I tried that morning. Well, it took uh, for the U.S. Uh, two, three days to um, to officially declare who was the target of that strike because the strike happened in the night of the Saturday to Sunday. And I think the, the speech was made on Tuesday. And so as soon as Bi uh, Biden, President uh, Biden, made uh, this declaration, Obviously, all the press in Kabul, whether local or foreign, um, went to that neighborhood, uh, Sherpur, to see the house. I tried. I got stopped at the Taliban checkpoint at the entrance of the neighborhood. Some journalists did manage to get past the first checkpoint, but then were arrested uh, directly after. Many local Afghan journalists were detained and, and beaten and, and, and severely attacked by Taliban fighters. This so, is, yeah, this basically is three, like three days the after the, the, the event. That is three days after the event. No, but it almost goes to show you that a lot of, even the checkpoints, the, the, the people manning those checkpoints didn't know initially that it was Zawahir. They themselves found out from Biden, or it seems so, right? Oh, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. And um, I mean, this is this comes at a time where I was also looking at images that our uh, friend Gareth Brown has uh, published from Gaza about the targeting of the um, Islamic Jihad operatives there, the, the, the main commander, uh, Al-Jabari. And it also seemed a similar assassination, like in the sense of like targeting just a specific unit in a house, trying to limit. It was it caused a bit more damage in Gaza, uh, but. It was also a unique assassination from what was revealed. Is that not uh, the case? Yeah, that's what it seems. At, at least that's what the Americans said, that there was no collateral damage. There has been rumors here in Kabul that others were killed in the strike and that there may have been relatives of uh, Taliban Interior Minister Sarajuddin uh, Akani, but that was unconfirmed. 
the Americans swore that there was only one killed, Zawari uh, himself. And that sounds that does sound plausible because of the type of weapon they used. So it was not uh, a, an explosive missile. It was the so-called ninja uh, missiles, which is a um, uh, missiles where there is not explosive, but only blades. So you cut and not explode the, the target. Okay. I mean, this is this is we're witnessing a new age in 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 this in, in the in counterterrorism, particularly with with target assassinations. This is not new. The Israelis have been doing it for years. Drone strikes in in Yemen, U.S. drone strikes, and others have also been common. But we seem to be approaching a new age where we will potentially see more targeted assassinations. Uh, uh, using more sophisticated weapons. There were assassinations of, of Iranian nuclear scientists using a lot of advanced weaponry. And I think this is not only making an impact on, on the operations, but also on the organizations themselves. One thing somebody noted in our discussion last week is that the Zawahiri was the head of Islamic Jihad in Egypt before uh merging with al-Qaeda since the 80s. So he's been an important key in that organization, which was created at the same time as Islamic Jihad in, in, in Palestine, which is the group that was targeted by the Israelis that same week. So coincidence or not, these were two organizations that take root in the 80s, right at the same time that Iran uh, uh, Islamic revolution took over uh, in 79. And together, they've just been, you know, they lost their leaderships. They are looking for new leadership, just like the RGC after Soleimani. And all of these groups are now, you know, almost witnessing the same shift. One of the interesting questions that came out last week was, are we not only going to see a change in leadership, but also a change in ideology or in those groups working together? Do you think that, the assassination of Zawahiri in Afghanistan has caused the Taliban to be more hostile or did they sort of like expect that and feel like, okay, that's, you know, fair game. How did you feel? Well, you know, some say that not all the Taliban's knew he was there, right? Apparently he was being hosted by the Akani network and maybe the other Taliban factions didn't know, didn't even know he was there. Okay. I'm not sure. But, you know, talking about the Zawari killing, obviously it's going to lead to a change of leadership, but I don't think it's going to change anything else because, you know, Al-Qaeda in the past 20 years has become this decentralized organization. Uh, obviously, Al-Qaeda means in Arabic the base, right? <laughs> but there is... No more base, really. I mean, Zawari was not a central figure in the organizations anymore in the sense that, you know, sympathizers and members of... Yes, Al-Qaeda I mean, Zawahiri would not, not, would not, he would not have been your guy. Right? He would not have been the guy planning, you know, a new attack in terms of logistics. He would not have been in charge of financing. But you have to remember, he was also important in his role when al-Baghdadi declared ISIS and, you know, wanted to announce the Islamic State in Syria and Zawahiri pushed back against that and told, you know, was was saying this is not the right time. This is not the kind of development for jihad. So in a way, you're right. He played that central ideologue role. And this is potentially why we're going to see with a change of people, 
a change of ideology potentially. I mean, that's a fair point. We, we, we might see that. But in terms of not ideology, but uh, organizes the structure of the organization, I would say it might change nothing or it might actually accelerate this phenomena of the organization Al-Qaeda decentralizing itself. Okay, I can, I can see that. And in the end of the day, the Doha agreement uh, that was signed under the Trump administration between uh, the US and the Taliban uh, seems to, to have almost predicted this kind of, you know, uh, a decentralization of, of global jihad, making it, you know, more into isolated networks and potentially seeing some of these groups de-radicalize in the sense where, you know, they were able to hold discussions with the Qatari government and the U.S. government in Doha in order to reach this agreement. So potentially, uh, uh, this was something that not only the U.S. wanted, but maybe potentially more moderates in those groups. Do you believe that now spending all this time in Afghanistan that some of these Taliban uh, members do want peace? Or is that just, you know, something we're trying to tell ourselves out here to, to make it, you know, acceptable what would just happen last year well i can only talk about the taliban that i i meet here in the streets of kabul and across the country on a daily basis right so these are the low to mid-level taliban and when i meet them yes i i will say that the majority of them want peace that they feel they've won the war they've vanquished the the occupier uh, the enemy um they feel proud they, they succeeded that they succeeded in doing that and uh, yeah, they are. I don't think you've Taliban would feel like okay, we won in Afghanistan. Now let's take the fight outside of the borders of the country in some kind of like global uh, jihad uh, experience. Uh, no, not at all. These are people that fought for very rational reasons, right? Because their villages were being uh, invaded. Would you almost say it was an Islamic nationalist movement then, rather than a global jihad movement? Yeah, yeah, I guess you could say that. I, I'm not sure, you know, many of these low-level fighters, I don't think they were fighting for Islam, they were fighting for their homes, you know? You had these villages that were constantly pounded by uh, American uh, airstrikes, that, which made, by the way, a colossal amount of civilian casualties throughout uh, these 20 years of war. So these were people that were fighting for their homes and maybe it's at the leadership level that they saw it in a more ideological uh, with a more ideological lens uh, and you know not only fighting for afghanistan and for afghans in their views but also for like yeah islam and jihad and these sort of things but the low-level fighters that's not the feeling i get when i speak with them uh, in the streets and what about the population then do they then uh sort of deal with the af you know, with the, with the Taliban as the government, or do they still treat them as, as as the, you know, as as a as a group? And also, can you be part of the government without being Taliban, or has everybody who's been part of the old government left? Um, so that's actually something I've been investigating in recent weeks. Um, when it comes to civil servants, a lot of them uh, stayed. And uh, they used to work under the previous government, under the Republic, and they now work under the Taliban control uh, ministries. 
Some because they felt they didn't have a choice. Uh, some tried to leave, uh, leave the country and uh, couldn't succeed. Others, well, you know, they don't mind the Taliban. Um, for others still, you know, there is an economic crisis and they need the salary. And the Taliban, on their side, they need these, these brains, you know. They need people that can uh, make, that can run a ministry in uh, these departments. They need these brains. Um, and when it comes to the political level, the high level, in the current gov Taliban government, everyone is Taliban, everyone is Pashtun, everyone is a man. There's only one notable exception. The deputy ministry of economy is, uh, is not Taliban and is uh, Azara. And he has, he has actually an interesting uh, CV. He, he has a PhD from Tehran University in uh, political sciences. And he used to, he founded and ran his uh, own private university here in Kabul. Okay, so so we are seeing more uh, uh, local characters who, who who are distanced, and that that would be something to definitely follow. I'm I'm, I'm glad that you're looking into it. Um, what about your next plans for uh, Afghanistan? What are you uh, mostly interested in looking at? Well, I've a few more days now in the country, so this weekend I'm gonna go to Wardak province uh, in the countryside in the villages, and I'm gonna go to the Tangi Valley where back in 2011, uh, the Taliban managed to uh, take down a um, U.S. Uh, Chinook helicopter. It was a very bloody day for the U.S. Um, forces. And it's also a valley where there has been a, a huge number of civilian casualties, mainly because of U.S. strikes and also, obviously, a lot of casualties in the ranks of the Taliban. It has, been, it has always been a very pro-Taliban uh, area. So it's going to be interesting to go there for a couple of days, you know, and speak with those people who are actually pretty satisfied with the um, Taliban government as, as it stands. Interesting. No, as as you know, you know, measuring the the uh, uh, non let's say non-state government, but measuring non-state actors who who take over is something that we've we've done for the last. Uh, while the governance house, and it's, it's very important for us to keep uh, an eye on, on the developments in Afghanistan. And I really, really hope you stay safe as you uh, continue your research. And uh, hopefully we can uh, follow up on that on our once you're, you're, you're back in, uh, in a position to report back. But thank you so much for today and, and uh, really, really take care of yourself while you're out there. Our information, our bio is on the website. For any more questions, please use the form there. This was Backgammon.